some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. Spice up your practice routine with original exercises and adaptations of all your favorite method books in 5-8 and 7-8 time. Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet by Michael Hengst. Oddmeter-exercises.com. Hey, everybody. Before we get into the interview with Nathaniel Mayfield, I feel compelled to give a bit of a disclaimer. We're going to go into a topic that we don't usually cover on this podcast. We're going to be talking about psychedelics a bit. And Nate, as you're going to hear uh, in just a little while, he had a recent excursion or a journey, I guess you call it, into psychedelics. And the reason I bring this up is because I feel it necessary to just say everything is done at your own risk and never ever do anything that involves psychedelics or hallucinogenics without proper supervision, without a trained uh, medical professional who knows what they're doing and who has a specific purpose for doing such things. That was the case with Nate and I, I just want to make sure that I say, do not interpret anything that is said in this podcast as uh, encouragement to do anything that is reckless or irresponsible or potentially illegal that can get you in trouble with the law. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I trust that everyone is mature enough to make their own decisions, but I do feel it necessary to say. Hey, folks, welcome to the show. This is James Newcomb coming into your earballs. And we've got a real treat for us. We've got Nathaniel Mayfield on the call. And Nate and I go back several years. I think it was about 15 years ago we met. Just mutual friend or someone that I knew said that I should look him up. And I did. And we became acquaintances and now friends. Each of us have had our own journey on trumpet, which has taken us away from it in our own respects. But then for some reason, it just calls us back. And Nate's got a really cool story about it. We're, we're going to hear in just a couple of minutes, and I have my own story. We all have our own story about how we fall away from it in one form or another, and then we just keep, it just seems like we just keep coming back to it for some reason. And there's got to be something beyond just the personal satisfaction that we get from it, or maybe just getting the, the high that we get from performing in front of people. Maybe there's something deeper than that keeps us coming back to it, and that might be one of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode, but with Nate, you just never know. So we'll see what happens. It's good to have you, man. It's good to be here. Yes, I can digress really quickly into <laughs> a lot of different rabbit holes. You are digressing. Uh, as we speak. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But I'm not sure actually the details of your journey. We could we can talk about that as well. Coming 
from trumpet to trumpet, back to trumpet, and music in general. I guess in my case, I've always looked at trumpet, it's weird. It's I've always looked at it from so many different angles. But I think the as I've gotten older, I think the most correct way to look at music or art or any practice like that is it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual journey. It's a deeply connected to our soul and our purpose in life. And I think that uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be 100% involved in trumpet, either professionally or doing it full-time or anything like that. I think we all come and go to varying levels of intensity in our lives. And for me, I'd fallen away from it for the last probably a good five years. I haven't really been playing at the professional level that I had prior and I think there was good reason for that, though. I think that was that's part of the journey. And it's just wild to think back on it. So you, you start playing trumpet for certain reasons. It evolves as you get older. And the whole time, it's as if a, a plan greater than yours is unfolding. And it's it's been interesting in my case to to see that. It's interesting for everybody. I think everybody has their own relationship with the instrument. And frankly, it's a sacred one. Who am I to say anybody's relationship is better or worse? Although I certainly have over the years, <laughs> but it's it's not what's coming from. I think the, it, it, yeah, I guess I would say those are more lower vibrations of life or however you want to say it. I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten much more I guess just I would say more accepting of things that I don't fully understand, and it's and a lot of that has to do with some of the experiences I've been through recently. But so yeah, where should I really begin with 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 my story? Let's um, talk about because yeah. uh, people may not know you. Uh, sure, people may not know the name Nathaniel Mayfield. Just tell briefly, yeah. just go through your own journey that because you go way way back, and like you had aspirations sure. from a very young age to play at a very high level. For sure, and and um, even I don't really even know Nate Mayfield either. So it's uh, it's, it's also trying to know yourself um, is something that uh, we all have to go through. But I guess for me, it was I had always liked music as a child. My mother was a wonderful singer. She could have been a very professional alto singer, gorgeous voice, but nothing ever spoke to me music wise. They tried to give me piano lessons and other guitar, and nothing worked at all until I got into sixth grade and kind of randomly got a trumpet. It was between trumpet or saxophone. And my mother, uh, who had sung in the uh, Austin Civic Chorus, she always liked the trumpet shall sound. And so she thought that would be great if I could play trumpet. So played the, the instrument and just, it was instantaneous. It was the first um, minute that I had that trumpet in my hand. It was as if I knew my purpose in life. It was, it was really crazy. It was, and it's not much of an exaggeration. Obviously, you're pretty young then. As soon as we got into beginning band and all of this, it was just pretty clear that it was such a, there was something inside of me uh, trying to come out in a way, which is, I guess, a weird way of describing it. But it's this voice that was inside of me that I had to see through to to whatever end that was going to be. And it was also... So much of it was also, frankly, based in love. When I would middle school, I would listen to Wynton Marsalis's Broke Music for Trumpet. And those classical recordings moved me in, I would say, spiritual ways. It was almost, it's not indescribable. So many people have similar experiences with music, but it was, it was healing. It was just beautiful. And my own, my whole purpose I felt in life was to, not my whole purpose, but one of the main things that I felt I had to do in life was to achieve 
something like that, to be able to replicate in my own way the influences that were presenting themselves. Wynton Marsalis, you had, of course, Rolf Schmedvig with the Empire Brass, and you had Ed Carroll and so many of these people and these idols that I really looked up to. And I had lots of struggles through middle school. It was fine, exhibited, won some competitions and things, and was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to go to Interlochen Arts Academy in high school, where I struggled very mightily, actually, doing a omicron change my junior year. Most people at that time, including myself, really wasn't even sure if I would ever play to any kind of serious level. And fortunately worked through that. That was a very difficult year. Couldn't really even play. I had to relearn how to play trumpet. And came back my senior year. And really at that point, things started to fall together. Got very lucky with winning the National Trumpet Competition, was a presidential scholar in the arts, met President Clinton and played at the Kennedy Center, which is still real crazy because they got Wynton Marsalis to introduce me to the entire audience, which was which was bananas. Uh, in terms of stress level at 18 years old to meet your childhood idol like that and was accepted into a program with Columbia and Juilliard. This is actually my only audition was at Juilliard. So it was, if I didn't get in, I wouldn't be able to go to a conservatory. So was able to cross-register, got a history degree at Columbia. And uh, yeah, just did all the music at Juilliard and did the summer festivals and then went to Germany. I met my wife, who is German, in a bar in New York City, and uh, which is another almost felt a, a divine type of a spark there. I turned 21 and I had this urge that I needed to go out and go to some bars and I would meet my wife. And it took me all of five days to meet her. And I'm like, all right, you're German. That's cool. I guess I'll learn German. And so I did. I got a Fulbright grant and studied with Reinhold Friedrich in Germany, which was also an extraordinary opportunity to see the European schools and all of the amazing players that at that time, there wasn't as much real, I don't want to say cross-pollination, but a lot of the musicians in America really didn't know the kind of level that was out there in, in Europe except for various recordings and things, but it was extraordinary to see the level and what they were doing over there. And in any case, got married, came back home at 25, and then started my trumpet, teaching trumpet and taking auditions and aspired to be in a major symphony orchestra, came very close on a number of auditions all around the world, and nothing quite panned out. And I was, at some point, I just said, I'm going to, and this is actually interesting in terms of the journey. I basically said, I don't really care about winning these competitions anymore. I don't care about having a professional career or being great or any of these types of words, whatever you want to do. I just want to have it be fun again. And as soon as I did that, it things really started to click for me. I wasn't fighting the instrument anymore. I was allowing it to... I, it's weird. It's, it's an extension of yourself, but it also gives back to you in a way. And I was able to... That's when I started playing Baroque trumpet. Oddly enough, I didn't really have any exposure to that in Europe, although Ed Tarr was over there and some other famous people that had started the whole Baroque trumpet. And the Baroque trumpet really spoke to me, and not many people were doing it at that time. And that was the instrument that I really started to love. I always loved the Baroque music and that genre, and then hearing it in the original instrument that it was that the music was written for really transformed my understanding of what the capabilities or the possibilities of the trumpet are, the Baroque trumpet. And so my whole goal was to start to play this music and do it live, put it up on YouTube. And and because at that time, a lot of Baroque trumpet players were making recordings and splicing every note and they would <laughs> then show up and the recital would be a lot different than the, the CDs. 
And I felt that it was important to do that to show what, not to really show what was possible, but just to really hopefully push the boundaries of what was considered at that time. And had a lot of success, probably did that for about 10 years, performed most of the major Bach cantatas and uh, oratorios and played a lot of the solo repertoire, Brandenburg Concerto, of course, which was, I think I've played it maybe close to 20 times. And I never thought that was even possible. And I think overcoming some of those, you know, looking at Brandenburg on Baroque trumpet, wondering if this is, how is this even possible? And to eventually achieve it and do a fairly good level at it, in my opinion, it meant a lot to me in terms of fulfillment of what I thought the purpose of trumpet was for me. There was another voice in my head, James, the whole time that was saying that trumpet is just leading you up to something else. And I didn't know what that was going to be either. And so I moved away from it probably about 10 years ago. I started migrating away from it and decided to go to two things. I started getting into energy. I decided to start an oil and gas company, which was I have no business doing, but has no experience doing any of that. So learned a lot of that. Started back in 2013. I went to business school at UT Austin, had a wonderful experience there. It was really great to see how the acumen that you learn as an artist is very relevant, actually, in the business world. And I gained a lot of confidence in that. I think that a lot of artists downplay their skills and capabilities. And there's a, it's, it was really great to see that being able to put together things using both sides of brain and come up with narratives and, and to be able to really, there's a certain artistry to business as well. And I felt that maybe this is what Trumpet had led me up to do. And then also helped my father. We own some restaurants here in Austin. So went to help him, started managing a couple of oil wells, learning all about oil and gas operations. And I think the last time I played Brandenburg was when I graduated in 2016. And then from there, I was, yeah, I've played a couple of concerts since where I've had to be in shape, but I would say that was the real last time I was in the absolute top form that you need to be. And yeah, I guess, so what's happened in the last eight years or whatever it's been has been, yeah, it's been interesting. I've felt, yeah, you feel like a piece of you is missing. And I think that we, people that have done music or art at such a, I, I guess at such an intensity that kind of goes without saying. And I think that uh, part of me was really missing that over the last, well, we'll just call it six or seven years. And it was, uh, there's always something in the back of my head that says, you should really have, I needed to finish this project. I should have played this piece. I should have, there's a lot of uh, trumpet things, trumpet teaching ideas that I wanted to get out there that I never wrote down. I never made any videos about. I never wrote down all of that Hindemith research that I'd done, which I need to still. And so a year, I'd say almost a year and a half ago now, I was almost actually killed in an explosion that happened on the soil lease and really shook me up. And so the last 14 or 15 months have been very stressful. I had to rebuild a lot of things. And in the meantime, I had this voice going in my head that I don't how to, I can't really describe it. It's not really a voice, except it it was telling me that it's time almost. It's time to come back or it's time to... It, it's time to remember that side of you. There's something important about it and you need to remember it, but for different reasons. Me being me, I decided to sign up for a psychedelic retreat in Tijuana, Mexico to see if I could have some visions to elucidate a little bit more about what this instinct I had was telling me. And boy, did it not disappoint. So it was, this happened in, in late June. 
I, I did a, this retreat and it's, I'm not sure how familiar the audience is with, with psychedelics. A lot of, I have very little experience in it. I'm never, I've never really done any, any drugs or anything along that nature. So I was always pretty square my whole life. But as far as opening up the mind and things like this, I know that there was a lot of research and a lot of people have really talked highly about it. What I didn't realize is that the the particular thing I'd signed up for is the most powerful psychedelic that's known to mankind. It's derived from the iboga root in Gabon, Africa. It's called ibogaine, which is basically the root in sort of pill form. And it entailed six to eight hours of visions and then another 24 to 36 hours of integration where you are in a waking REM type of a sleep. And within that time, it was it was extraordinarily profound. In fact, words fail me to really describe what I saw. I can try, and I should. And then we followed it up, I guess, a, a couple of days later with 5-MeO-DMT, which is the toad venom that is used for similar reasons that was nothing nearly as powerful as the Ibogaine was. I guess I can say the message that I got, when you're in a state like that, it's, it's, of course, it's indescribable where you're seeing geometries and things that, that shouldn't exist in this realm. The familiarity that you see is very present that you've been here before, that this is home in many ways. Um, and it's, and, and this medicine is, as I call it, or as we all call it, is literally communicating with you. It's as if there's a, a ficus tree next to you that starts talking to you and it's uh, got a consciousness that is much, uh, much greater than what we're able to see. And I guess to bring it to music and trumpet, it, it would happen in a roundabout way. I was able to see that all of the universe, everything that's created around us is done out of love. And it's, which goes without saying, I think we all know this, to see it and to experience it at that level, you're reminded that you're created and you're created out of love. And you're all the universe really wants for anything that is created is to have this celebratory love. Everything, the one of the things I wrote down is the the engine of the fabric of reality is love. And it got me thinking a lot about trumpet. In so many ways, I felt at home and at peace playing trumpet because whenever I played, it was coming out of a place of love. And I think that's an important lesson for a lot of people who or on any instrument, frankly, is you should ask yourself, are you, are you approaching this out of a place of love? Do you feel a connection with God or do you feel a connection with love when you are playing this instrument? And I always did. And it was one of the things that allowed me, I think, ultimately to tackle the, the repertoire that I was able to do on the instrument and to be able to solve things as I problems as they came up. And the purpose unfolded in my life. But it came out because by and large, my motivations when I played was really about sharing love, which is what our intention is and purpose in this world is. And so to be removed from that or to not find a substitute for that, I think is what the main lesson has been for me. I guess I would think that I would be able to find something else to do with my time after I stopped playing trumpet or as I did it less, but I'm not able to share love in that way or in that manner like I could with the instrument. And I felt deep satisfaction from that, but I also felt the universe or the God or whatever Richard Dawkins calls God also ag agreed with that. And so I think that's what I was really missing. It's not the high from playing. It's not whether or not you make a lot of money playing the instrument. 
it's ultimately about the people that you've touched. And, and I always downplayed that, James, over my years of watching people in the audience. And I was here, it's like, they just don't. You underestimate the impact and the power that you can have on people. And they'll come up to you afterwards and they'll pull all over you and say, I loved it. And you're just like, oh, I got it. It's time to go have a drink afterwards. But but you underestimate the feelings. And I think that I, I always downplayed that. And after seeing this, the visions that I saw, I'm deeply grateful for that. And I came out of it thanking God that I'm still alive, that I can still, I have time to share love with people. I have the ability still to do more. And I think that is when the universe, in so many ways, this is when it's always funny that you start seeing coincidences and things like this that start to happen. I guess this podcast could be one of those, one among so many. Immediately following this retreat in Tijuana, I went back to San Diego, flew from San Diego to Phoenix. And I'm talking to this person I met in the airplane. We're getting a couple club sodas at the bar. Bartender wasn't happy about that, but just drinking there some club sodas waiting for our flight to Austin. And in walks into the restaurant bar with somebody I thought had a trumpet case. And I looked, I said, I can't believe this has got it. This can't be him. And sure enough, the guy around, I said to the guy, I said, if this guy has a trumpet case, this is the craziest coincidence. And it's even more funny because I was just asking this guy that I had just met, I was saying, I don't know how I should live my life moving forward. What kind of role model I should have? What guide do I have now that I'm in this world different? It's different once you come back into this reality, such as it is, you are wondering for what is the guide? What should I have? And the guy that turns the corner, of course, he had a trumpet case. And it was it was Whiff Rudd, who, who is, we all know, is the famous trumpet professor at Baylor and is, uh, I would say, universally accepted as the moral paragon of the trumpet world. And to have him be there at that moment, and he had just gotten, we both got first class upgrades. We're both going to Austin and we're both sitting next to each other. It was the craziest coincidence ever. So it's what the universe in many ways answering you or, or showing, I think, what it's not going to be, you know, clear. It's obviously, it's a little bit always murky and everything in this world is, there's never any 100% solid answers. But I think that's a pretty, that was a pretty big sign to me that to remember, to remember the impact that I had on Trumpet and to, to come back to it in some ways. And to see the people that I've met and with was just, we had a great conversation. And I remember I'd given a masterclass there years ago, and we've talked a lot over the years. And it, this is, and there have been other, many other coincidences. I ran into another trumpet student the other day who had a great talk about, told was very kind about the influence I had on him in his life and other things like that. So I think in a way, it's like I, the universe is nudging me to come back to it. I don't know to what degree or to what level or into what capacity really, but I think to embrace that side to me again and remember it out of a place of love. And I think that's just, I guess that's where I am right now. So to answer your question. Hey, I want to interrupt today's show to tell you about Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet by Trumpet Dynamics previous guest, Michael Hankst, professor of trumpet at Metropolitan State University in Denver. These exercises are for serious players looking to enhance their familiarity with 5.8 and 7.8 meters, strengthen and expand their range and endurance, stay engaged and focused while practicing, as well as those looking to play new exercises or even old exercises, such as ones by Clark, Stamp, Gecker, and Smith in a new way. When you practice the same thing the same way, without variation, it's easy to zone out or lose focus and just 
Play on repeat without purpose. These exercises attempt to minimize that by constantly switching up the 5-8-7-8 groupings within each exercise, and I have used them and I can attest to their efficacy. Aspects of trumpet playing that are addressed in this book include articulation, multiple articulation, whole tone, major, dominant, and diminished arpeggios, intervolic precision, and scales. To grab your copy of Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet, just go to oddmeter-exercises.com. That's oddmeter-exercises.com. There's something that you said in in your comments just now, and I want to get some clarity on, and, and maybe I'm just misreading or misremembering what you said, and this is this goes back probably ten over 10 years ago when you and I were speaking sure. privately, but you said that you were going for all these auditions, and it was basically like, it was a competition, like your life, your trumpet life was a competition. That was the essence yeah. of it. And then you just said, forget about it. I don't, if I win, and if I don't, then... It, but like the That's competition right. didn't define your experience with it. And it sounds to me like that was a great release for you. And then yeah, it, it was, and I want to get your comments on that, but also just speaking with you. And again, I might be completely misreading what you were saying, but it sounded to me like you were a little bit burned out on trumpet. And this is probably 2010, 2012, right around the time that you uh, began to step away from it a little bit. I don't know that I have a specific question to ask, but I just wonder if you could just comment a little bit on first that kind of releasing from the competition. And then when you realized I have to step back from this for my own good, and now you're, and we'll see what the future holds and you're going to come back to it to whatever degree, but just speak on that a little bit. Yeah. I think so much of my life was almost defined in trumpet by I would say there was lots of, it was almost do or die moments. I, I had a very, and maybe, maybe that's self-imposed. Maybe not too, I'm not sure. The competition was so fierce. We have hundreds of people showing up. I think the Juilliard audition, there was 300 people maybe for two spots. And that was par for the course with any of the music festivals, the auditions and the pressure at Interlochen was quite high. And to that constant pressure to improve, to succeed, to perform, was very ingrained throughout high school. And I, then also, obviously, even in, in college, there was a lot of just, it always seemed like there was a lot of competition and that I could never really get get past. And it almost takes, it does take away the fun of it, actually, in, in many ways. How does one grow beyond that? Yeah, I would say that before, though, before we met, though, I had a similar, I would say, breakdown necessarily, but I needed to. That's when I basically said I, I was doing, I think, Maurice Andre competition and had a very terrible first round. Although I played the Telemann concerto, I totally crashed and burned on all the pieces except for Telemann. And uh, actually, one of the organizers came up and said, you're a great trumpet player. She said that to me, even though I totally crashed and burned and was obviously in front of the best jury in the world with Roger Bazan was there, Friedrich. So many people were there and people that I had looked up to. And I think it was after that that I just said, I give up. I try to do so many different amateur things, so many different things to try. And I felt compete at that level. And again, this would have been around the early 2000s, I suppose, probably around 2000 say 2000, 
four even. And that was when I basically said, I don't really care if I'm winning competitions anymore. I don't care. I just want to go back. I want to have a relationship with the trumpet that feels normal, I guess, to say, or that it just feels right. And I need that connection again. And that's when I started playing the Baroque trumpet. And then we did the whole thing all over again. It was, again, it was almost this, you have a bit of that fight or flight or that do or die because you're trying to play some of the hardest repertoire on a instrument that there's not there wasn't a whole lot of guide guide out there. There wasn't re- there weren't any really Baroque trumpet teachers out there that really knew it very well. You had to problem solve a lot of it on your own, and then you had to then you're trying to do it live and putting it on <laughs> on YouTube and or whatever it is, and then you have to perform and you're trying to make a name for yourself and you have to show up and succeed. And so that pressure started all over again for about five years. Plus you're married at that point. You need to make money. You have 30 students a a week that you're trying to manage. And it's at the same time, you're trying to freelance uh, playing modern trumpet and Baroque trumpet. And it was that also got to the point to where maintaining that the travel involved, the time it, it necessitated to maintain that level was also burning me out around the time that we had met. Although that was quite fun. I think it was still, yeah, that was, I think it was the Art of Baroque Trumpet recital that I'd done. And it was, it was a great program. I loved doing that, but it was just, I think it was just the, the constant, yeah, the, the constant travel, the, the constant stress of playing this type of music at that high of a level. And I didn't really want to do it at a lower level either. I, it's not like I want to show up and play the something. And I've seen that. We've all seen that with players as they get older, they, so they go from playing Brandenburg and the next thing you know, they're playing some easy piece personal trumpet sonata laying out and get the organist for a couple of ways. I, I didn't want to disintegrate to that level either. And I also was curious to explore other parts of this world. I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think that we've idolized so many musicians that have done it their whole lives. They start playing, speaking of, of Roger Bazana, I think he got the Boston Symphony job when he was 20 or something like that, or even think, in his late I think teens. he was like 14 or 15, wasn't he? Yeah, it, it was something crazy, right? And then so, I mean, he was there for decades and decades, and then he kept do, teaching. And, and in many ways, there are role models. All of my role models were like that. But I also felt in many ways, it was it's a much larger world. And I felt that I wanted to try and learn other things. Just to, I was just curious about the diversity of, of career choices, of opportunities, if you can make them happen. I also felt that I was also lucky to have certain opportunities and I felt it would be in many ways morally wrong not to pursue those. Also to grow in different ways. I wanted to show the world that being a musician, you can come from being a trump. What other place than in many ways America can somebody come from playing trumpet to running an oil? I think there's something cool about that. I think there's something uh, cool about sharing that artists are, for lack of better words, are more than just artists. I think they can succeed in other realms, other parts of this, of the world. And that was, I felt called in some ways to do that. It it was, but it's been a very extremely stressful time for me on a different, in a different way now, away from trumpet. And now I'm almost now seeing the benefits and the positive things that I was able, that I couldn't quite see when I was playing trumpet. Because you're just inundated with all of them. It's something you do all the time. I think we spoke about the health benefits of doing breathing exercises or stretching or sort of that sort of ritual meditation that one gets even mentally when just warming up or playing. And and then you it's you're going through something larger that goes back. If I were to play a wedding and I still do, I play trumpet voluntary. I still remember the first time I heard trumpet voluntary on Hooked on Classics, I think, when I was in <laughs> probably seven years old. And that, yeah, I guess that maybe that answers the question. I'm not sure. I probably digressed a little I bit. I, so. I don't think I even asked a question. So it's all good. 
But I think a lot of it is maturity too. Like when you're probably in your 20s, maybe up to, I'm just going off of my own experience, but up to probably about 35, I was just hell-bent on one thing. This is what defines me as a person. But I don't, like, trumpet now is something that I do. I talk about it a lot on this show, but it's not who I am. And that's, I think, a lot of <clears throat> what you're talking about is just simply just growing up. Just becoming older, yeah, more I would, mature I would, as a person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say a lot of people, yeah, let's not jump to conclusions that I've grown up. But uh, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of truth to that, James. And I don't disagree. I, I think that it, I have been, yeah, I look back on my life. I've been very immature about a lot of things. I'm quite extreme, but I, it's fun. But but it's, yeah, and I think the re, as a, my relationship with the trumpet has, it has, I would say that it has grown up and it's become less, I, I don't know, I guess it's just, hopefully it's become more pure. Or it's more of- I think it comes yeah. down to an emotional dependence on it. I don't know if that's the right word, but when you, you just, you have to have- something to validate you as a person when you're younger. Exactly. And then when you're older and you're humbled a little bit, you've been around the block a couple of times and you get kicked in the teeth and you just realize there are more important things to worry about than my own abilities or my performance on a particular instrument. There's just more to life than that. For sure. For sure. It's, I could really go down this one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly what I did. And that's normal. I think it's a normal progression. People are, it would be inhuman almost for when you're young, you want to use that whatever you can to stand out to say, look at me, I'm this. It's just a very young thing for, for people to do, to stand out, to get that self-confidence. And you think that it's a, you think you have to beat everybody else in order to stand out. It's actually true, though. <laughs> On the flip side, it's not like I just came up with this stuff out of there. I mean, you know, there are competitions. There are only three spots or whatever it is. And there, and it is very competitive. And the music world, in some ways, is to blame for that. I, I don't know another solution around it. But I think that, and I wouldn't be the only one to say this, I think that there's been lots of criticisms about the music world, even particularly in America over the years for being too competitive, too, too based upon that sort of, I guess you could say that symphony orchestra type of mentality, that mindset. Whereas in Europe, I did feel it was a little bit more free. There was a lot longer history. People were doing things a little bit more. It wasn't as intense in that regard. And it was also still, but the level was still excellent and it allowed a certain creativity to to flourish and uh, yeah and i think in the end i it's also we take ourselves too seriously as i started doing these recitals and things i remember i played a brandenburg i invited my father to see it and i felt it was terrible i felt it was absolutely terrible of course everybody's standing ovation and all that other stuff people it's just everything but thinks it's great and then you have this internal kind of hatred of yourself for you know playing very well Many times I've played concerts that have been where I've missed something or it's been, I felt it didn't go well at all. And people come up and they say, oh my gosh, it was just amazing. When you realize that the audience can't really hear what you're doing. But they <laughs> so, can, and you yeah. said this earlier, but they can feel the love that you're sharing with them. No way. You're absolutely 1000% right. It's, it is about that. Uh, it's the intention of it. And uh, yeah, you also un underestimate how forgiving people are. Um, because you're so hard on yourself and you have to be a musician. I think that's one of the things we need to, that we try to unlearn as we get older. You might call it maturity, 
But I, at a certain, I can't remember the quote. I, I know I've probably said this to you before. I want to say it was Tchaikovsky. I think Chris Gecker told me this quote, so you'd have to ask him. But I think it was Tchaikovsky that said, you have to be a self-loathing narcissist in order to become a great musician. And, and there is some truth to that. And it's hard to flip that switch. And I think that it's one of the reasons a lot of musicians fall into addiction or self-destructive behavior, because you, it, it's hard to love yourself when you should. But then again, if you do, you're not hard on yourself enough to push yourself to reach that level. And I think as you get older, you just, you don't feel that self-criticism as much anymore. And I think that's, you realize like, I just had a bad day or I'm just doing this. It's more, it's not that hysterical do or die like you felt when you were younger. It's also that you probably have, yeah, it's not like I have to audition for anything right now. The title of this podcast, I have to get this up. I've got this written down. Hallucinogenic manner in which God or whatever Richard Dawkins calls God, called Nathaniel Mayfield <laughs> back. And I and we talked on the phone a little bit yesterday, and you went into a lot more detail on this experience, and people probably sure. piqued their curiosity. So let's talk about it. What was the experience? And expound on that a little bit. With the, with the Ivy game? Yeah. What did I see? The visions that I saw. Okay, we you can said, definitely... Okay, uh, you said something uh, about ego dissolution. That was the DMT or the 5-MeO-DMT. I guess to... I should explain the Ibogaine a little bit more. So there were, is, yeah, yeah, it, it's, so there were four of us that were part of this uh, retreat and there was a, a chaplain, which I thought was wild. Uh, I was sharing a room with him, super cool. There was a guy that was struggling with some heavy addictions for the past 30 years, actually, and he was trying to turn his life around. And then there was a, a guy in his, I want to say mid sixties, mid to late sixties, who works at MAPS, which is a psychedelic organization. I can't remember what it stands for, but it's a world worldwide psychedelic organization. And he had done ayahuasca hundreds of times. Now, ayahuasca is considered, I had thought as the most powerful psychedelic, but after this guy did it, he said that, that Ibogaine was by far the, the most powerful thing he had ever done. And this is a guy that had done ayahuasca for hundreds of times. Ayahuasca, for people that don't know about it, I have not done it, but it is that the sort of the shamanistic ritual that you would see in, in Peru. The shamans say that the plants told them to do it. So basically that you have to boil the tree bark from one particular tree and that releases an enzyme that allows the DMT, which is dimethyltryptamine, which is the psychedelic, the active psychoactive component, to be released from the leaf and it's the only way that you're able to have it become ingested through the stomach, so gastrointestinally, and then you also are able to hold it for a long time because it also blocks your receptors in your brain from breaking down the DMT. DMT is very quickly broken down in the brain. When I did it and when I smoked it, it was seven minutes was what I experienced. Again, it was one of those kind of urges that I felt was it just, it was almost like something was telling me to, it's the best I can use to, best I can describe that, that I felt it was important for me to grow spiritually to, that I would be shown very important things. And I felt like in some ways I was, I don't want to say missing something in my life, but I think I'm in my mid to late forties, I'm 47, I'll be 40 eight in March. And I remember I was talking to an attorney friend of mine who actually went to Interlock and Arts Academy with me of all random coincidences. And we've become really good friends. But he says that, he said, Nate, 
he's a little older than me. He says, but 47 is the worst year. He said, they've done this study where across all kinds of nations and socioeconomic groups, everything, and everybody agrees that for a man, 47.2 years old is the worst. And then you come out of it. He says, I bet you're feeling bad, but you're going to come out of it. You're going to be fine. I was like, I think it was just that mid forties type of stuff. And I was like, okay, all right, then let's see what we can do. And I'd, I'd been exposed to some podcasts. I heard actually, to be completely honest, I was going to do the ayahuasca and I heard a podcast by a guy named Sean Ryan, the Sean Ryan podcast. And he was a former Navy SEAL who was dealing with a lot of PTSD. And he did a, he actually did this Ibogaine retreat with the same person that I was going to do it with. So after hearing his experience, and then there was also another podcast, I guess his name is Trevor Miller. So there was a lot of research that has gone on for Ibogaine or Iboga to not necessarily be a miracle drug in some ways, but it it has an extraordinary, I think, healing components and things about it that, and healing that has to do with things you might not even be aware of. PTSD is, is a big one, but then again, so is, and I'm certainly not one to say that I'm dealing with PTSD or anything along those lines. But then again, I did deal with quite a bit of stress in the trumpet as a as a kid. And I guess I wondered to the degree to which I'm still maybe dealing with some of those things. So I think in those, maybe just to really get that 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 experience or that, I, I guess they call it, I don't know, mind expansion or whatever you want to call it. So that's where I came from it. And I felt that it might make me happier, but also give me insights into things that I might not be aware of. Also just healing from my life. It would, and it did not disappoint. So that was the motivation for it. Um, and I also had a window of opportunity. My wife uh, had taken the kids to Europe. We eventually met up and we hiked around Mont Blanc, which is actually a great story too. One of the coolest things I've ever done. Yeah. And I just decided to just jump into it, not knowing what I was really getting into other than I knew it was going to be intense. And there's always this feeling of it's like, you're going to get on this big roller coaster. So it's what it, it, the feeling there. So yeah, it was a very planned, very safe environment. You have to do blood work, EKGs. They have staff there and the whole thing is, and I wanted to make sure it was safe. And yeah. And so it was a, a whole planned out thing. You go to a sweat lodge when you get there, they scream in all these uh, prayers you don't understand in a 200 degree weather, purifying yourself. And then the, the next day, do some breath work, which actually I enjoyed quite a bit. Actually integrating some of the breathing was actually very, very elucidating because I felt obviously I take a lot of pride in my breathing over the years. I, I'm not doing my job, but you don't pass out. So this is very good for me. And I thought I knew it all about breath work, but I realized that I didn't know really anything when it was integrating into that. So I had blockages in certain areas of how I was breathing really around my heart which is a very interesting thing. They have the different chakras and different zones and everything, but I had a hard time kind of releasing the breath into what they call around your heart area. So in any case, they weigh you when you're there and they give you four pills that are the Ibogaine and you take these pills over, I guess, an hour and 15 minutes, something like that. Take the first one. You have a ceremony before they're purifying you. They got the sage and saying prayers and you throw some intentions into the fire and then you take your first pill and you wait 45 minutes later, you take your second, 15 minutes, your third and 15 after that is your fourth. And I think after the second one that we're just watching planet earth in this TV room, we're all waiting for this stuff to take effect. And, and James, it's a, but it's a scary thing. Again, you're, you feel, I don't know if you've been on the roller coaster, that's there's a the rattler and down here in Austin or something, you can hear it's tick, 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 tick. So it's, you feel like it's going to, 
it's going to happen at any moment. And so, yeah, 45 minutes, didn't feel anything. Then we take our second pill. And, and then at some point, the chaplain stands up and he says, I can't watch this TV anymore. And then so he's gone. He goes upstairs to where they have these four mattresses with the EKG monitors and water and a mirror and a rattle, which I'll talk about in a minute. You'll find this cool in a second. So the rest of us just stay down there. And then we all go up after that hour and 15 is up. So we've all taken our four pills. The psychedelic, the uh, guy that had done the ayahuasca goes down next. And so then I'm just with this other guy and we're in a mirror and we have a rattle, which I guess I could show you and pull it out of my library in a second. But you have a little rattle that you're rattling. And I didn't know this, but they say that oh, there's been a lot of studies that say those, aver I guess not aborigine or whatever you want to call them, those traditional rattles of those shaking rouse shakers, what do you want to call them? They release theta waves in your brain. So we're doing that. We're listening to all this traditional music from Gabon, which is quite intense. It's a lot of screaming and shouting and tribal type of music going on. And you're rattling and I'm looking in the mirror and nothing's happening. Nothing is happening at all. And I think eventually this other guy, he like lies down and I'm just sitting there and they say, you're not feeling anything. So stand up, move around. I did. Back down, like another 15 minutes goes by, nothing. They tell me to go downstairs. Talk. So I was practicing my Spanish downstairs with some of the staff downstairs, had a good time, not feeling anything, a little nervous. Then they give me another 15 minutes and I'm just looking in the mirror. Nothing's happening at all. And then they come up to me. They said, all right, we're going to give you a booster. And this is going to help you to feel something since you haven't felt anything. And so what I didn't realize is my liver at this point is converting everything that I'd taken into this certain chemical. And then I guess it releases that into your brain at a certain time. So that's coming. But then they give you this booster under your tongue that hits into your blood. And yeah, he gives me this thing. And so I'm like, okay, I'll take it with some honey, crunch it up under my tongue. It's good honey. And so <clears throat> just waiting and then still not feeling anything. And about five minutes goes by. And that's when things started to get a little bit weird. You start seeing what are called tracers and like these little, I guess if you looked at the sun and then you look in your car or something, you start seeing that. But James, the wildest thing, they had said to me that a lot of people report hearing a mechanical swarm of bees. And when they start getting into the into the effects of the ibogaine and yeah all of a sudden i hear and as they said in the left ear is where you usually hear it in the left ear i thought it was part of the music it sounded just like the out of the music from gabon but i was like wait a minute that's not the music because it's going on all the time and then it was like this it was for lack of better words it was a mechanical swarm of bees it sounded exactly like that and, and yeah, and so I was very, got really scared at that point. I'm thinking, okay, this is really about something is about to happen. I told the staff guy there, I said, I, I'm really, I feel like I'm about to really go in. I'm really scared. Just relax. Just let it happen. Don't fight anything. And so I didn't. And then, yeah, I closed my eyes and for lack of better words, the universe that I knew dissolved into something that was indescribably beautiful and infinite. And so I plunged into, it's hard to describe. You would see, I would see like little flowers was a big kind of a component, but it would take me in immediately. It, it, it is really, there's a, they call it a spirit guide. And so the, so the medicine is there talking to you in many ways. It's not, it's not a staff member talking to you. It's nothing, but there is a voice inside of you talking to you that is definitely not you. And it's there with you. And so the, and it, it's there to help you on your journey. And so within the first we're talking five to 10 seconds. 
it was immediately showing me infinity, which is a hard concept for us to understand. But I would go into one point in a uh, little galaxy thing and it would explode into a whole new universe. And before I could comprehend that universe, it'd take me into another point and that would explode. And that kept exploding again and again. And the whole thing around me was was just, it was so beautiful. And I first I asked, where is all of this coming from? And they said, of course, everything comes from nothing. It has always been that way and it always will be that way. And it's cool. And it just kept showing me just all of this infinite expansion. And it's all created out of that love is where I was trying to say. And this is within the first five seconds, James. It's just incredible how time is no longer... It's no longer what it was when you started. And then at some point I asked the thing, I said, this is so unbelievably beautiful, but I'm going to forget it. You can't really explain what you're seeing. There's no words that we have in our language to explain the the beauty or the geometry or, or the what you're seeing. So then it says, okay, and the medicine created this beautiful bridge. It was like a golden bridge that connected one part of the of these cities that were coming up, these infinite like cities that were just unbelievably full of vibrancy and life. And it made this huge bridge that then connected another part of it. And it, all these beautiful like jewels and windows, and it was flying around. And it was this yellow bridge. And then the medicine said, uh, you know what that bridge is made out of? They said, no. And I'm flying around this thing. I'm looking at this big bridge. It says, that bridge is made out of butter. And I was like, oh my God, really? He says, yes, you're not going to forget that, are you? Nope. <laughs> I'm not going to forget that. I only remember really 1% of what I saw, but that was one of the big things that I remember seeing in the initial, again, the first couple of minutes, and I have another six hours to go. So it was extraordinarily powerful. The thing that really, so Ibogaine is very internal. You see a lot of your own life, like on a TV set, and you see how really, for lack of better words, how you fail as a person compared to the beauty that you're created from and that infinite beauty that's around you. And it's magnificent. And then you have to watch your life and your crappy decisions and the things you've done to hurt people and all the ways you failed. And it really is designed, everybody said this would happen, to really break you down. And then it makes you, it brings you back up out of that. And there was a lot that I did see. I saw millions of little envelopes with they were like hard to describe and they're all interacting with each other and within every envelope it was really beautiful they all had these floral arrangements and there's little strings connecting them and they're moving up and down in amazing ways and inside of each of these envelopes they were so beautiful they were all the same size a little bit different and again geometries and colors that we don't really have here in this world and inside of them was this little vial like this little like tube was inside of each of these. It was packed in all this. And the medicine said, do you know what's in each of those? Do you know what that little vial is inside of each of these envelopes that are all just moving around and interacting? And I said, no, what is it? And it says, that's the divine spirit. So in every one of these things that's there, which I suppose represent people or life or whatever you want to call it, is the exact, what the lesson was is that it's the same. Each of those vials is the same size. We all have the same divine spirit in us. And the way that we're supposed to be interacting with each other is through love. And that was extraordinarily powerful to see. And again, you think about your crappy life and everything you've done and you're, you're just, God, why didn't I just do this? And it's like, I don't know. Why didn't you just do that? And I don't know either. 
because obviously this world is a lower vibration or lower type of existence, I guess you could say. But karma was the other big uh, lesson that I got that I saw so many ways to where it makes total sense that I've been treated this way because of how I've treated other people. And it's it was very humbling in that regard. So that was really, to give you a sense of the time, I think they came in with an IV at 10 in the morning because they hydrate you afterwards. And I was praying to God that it was at least three in the morning and I only had seven more hours to go before before it was all over. Yeah, it was quite quite intense. And then you have the next, then you have the next day. So the next 24 hours after that is what's called integration. And so you're really not done yet, but you're in this, the visions have stopped and it was, but you're in again, a waking dream and you're really hit with a lot of powerful feelings for lack of better words. And so love was a huge one. I was able to feel the love that my parents had for me when I was born, if that makes sense. So that love that create that all of creation is really based out of love one way or the other. And it's it was extremely powerful. I remember I wrote them. All I wanted to do was just to tell everybody that I love them. And we're all that it was it was extremely powerful. And that went on. There was a yeah, there's a lot of crying that went on, of course. And you remember just I, I guess the way I describe this to people is that it was like finding let's say you lost a child 40 years ago or something and all of a sudden the door opens and that child is there again and that child comes up and loves you and hugs you and wants to be with you again and you realize that but that child is you so you see your initial almost like your initial did form which is almost a little bit childlike before the world really beats you down and you realize that this person that you are is the ego that you have is not really you and what you really are is just a beautiful divine being that was created out of love. And we struggled in this realm reconciling those two things. And I'm not going to be one of those, I'm not one of these guru kind of guys that I, I don't, I'm not fully on board with all of it because the world's a brutal place and it, you have to be tough to survive. And uh, Trumpet taught me you have to be tough as well. That said, it's important to remember that we all are like that. And so I came away with it with a, profound understanding that we are all the same. And I could just as easily be, you could just as easily be me. And as this translates into the trumpet world, I guess it makes me much more humble and less judgmental of somebody else, not even just their performance, but to just their relationship with the instrument. I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know what their goal is, but I know that again, ultimately there's everybody has their own journey with the good, the bad, the suffering, the the joy that comes with all of that. So deeply humbling. Then we, again, the day after that is when we did the 5-MeO DMT, which I guess the audience will appreciate this story. So the chaplain guy says, hey, I'm going to go because we're all still pretty, pretty not freaked out from the Ibogaine, but it was a pretty intense experience. I actually was the only one that saw anything like this. Everybody else was, was pretty, blah, I don't want to say blasé, but I'm telling you this, people just, they saw a few little things here and there, but it was nothing like to the degree that I went through. Which is why I was surprised that the that psychedelic guy had said that it was the most powerful thing he's ever done. And it really makes me feel that I got a pretty big, pretty big experience out of it. So in any case, he decides to go first to smoke the 5-MeO-DMT. They all say it's going to be wonderful. It's just that you're being held by God or something. And I'm like, okay, I'm still pretty freaked out. I almost didn't do it. I was That was such an intense experience with the Ibogaine that I almost didn't do it. And I'm just downstairs and I take this, this chaplain up there. 
And, and they said, it's going to be wonderful. Just lay back. You'll enjoy it. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to go wrong and all this stuff. And I'm literally talking to this guy downstairs and we start hearing the chaplain upstairs screaming at the top of his lungs. He starts going, oh, God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it goes on and on. And, and so it's supposed to be over pretty quick. And it just kept going on and on. I think finally after three minutes, it stopped. This was like really, oh my God. So just like torturing this guy. And uh, we're just like, I guess he finally's on his trip. He's finally just maybe over whatever. And I was like, man, yeah, that must've been something. Yeah, he's just, and then it should have been over or whatever. But then he starts screaming a second time. Same thing. Another like two, three minutes. Oh, and, and then it's over for him and he comes down, he's wrapped in a blanket, he's he's smiling, and then I and I guess I'm next. Like drug upstairs, and the next thing I know, I'm they're doing the whole thing. I'm literally so I don't know, you ever you ever had a dog before, James? Yeah, we have a bit very cute dog. Her name is Cinnamon. She's an eleven pound miniature poodle. Oh, this is yeah, you're gonna have you ever had to take that dog to the vet? Yes. Okay, you know what a dog's like when they go in the vet, now they start shaking yeah. and stuff, Terrified. you know? Yeah, terrible. Okay. That is exactly how I was before I went into the room to smoke this 5-MeO-DMT. I did not want to do it. I'm really freaking out. I'm really shaking. I'm terrified, frankly, because it's supposed to be same thing. You have like a rocket ship and you're like going off into the universe. And I just done that. And I did not really want to do it again. So in any case, you're there on a mattress. And I asked this one of the staff members, her name is Gabriella. As I was like I said, I'm so freaked out. Can you just sit next to me while I do this? She said, sure. There's all these staff there, clipboards. I guess they're going to watch me start screaming too. I don't know what's about to happen. They've got this lighter there. It looks like some kind of a crack pipe you would see on like A&E intervention or something. And it's all, it was, it's terrifying. And it shouldn't have been, but so in any case, there it is. They're like, okay, Holmes, here you go. And I've got this thing and you know, I'm supposed to inhale for 10 seconds, you hold it for 10 seconds, and then you just count backwards and you float back into the mattress. And I deliberately didn't use my trumpet breathing to really breathe into this thing. I think I could have really, <laughs> could have really crushed it, but I was so scared with what I just heard. And so finally do I smoke, breathe in for 10, hold it, pretend or breathe out for 10. And then basically they're just like, whatever, just let go. And I did, there was no screaming involved. I just literally, I dissolved. And this is, it's hard to describe this to anybody that's never been through it, but they call it ego dissolution. But my, yeah, I dissolved as a person. It's hard to describe. I was no longer, there was no longer any Nate Mayfield. There was a, my consciousness like dissolved into the ether is how I would describe it. And there was no time. You are there in this wonderful, you united or reunited with the universe and it's out of love you feel like you become one with love that is a an ether type of a thing it's formless hard very hard to describe <clears throat> and you don't really want to leave you love it there it's beautiful part of me was waiting for like this rocket ship to go off or something like what i'd seen the day before but that never happened i was just literally just held in this this beautiful kind of cloud of love and then i started to dimly feel my hand and then I'm feeling something holding my hand. And then I feel like, oh, wait, I'm a person. I'm coming into this. And I remembered, yeah, finally I became a person again and I opened my eyes and I look around me and uh, no one was holding my hand, but I asked Gabriella if she was holding my hand and she said that she was. And I said, it was just like my mother holding my hand when I was born. 
the experience of coming back into this world was just like when we originally came into this world. We came from this formless cloud or whatever you want to call it. And we became, and we were, the transition is love and hopefully a mother's love and that's holding you. And it's, it was extremely powerful. I took a picture of her hand so I could remember it later, but it was, but I'm crying, she's crying. And then they asked me if I wanted to do it again. And I'm like, nope, I think I've gotten the experience I need. And apparently the chaplain, he did it twice. I didn't know that. You would think that he said he had a great time, but I'm like, you could have screamed a little less loudly. Anyway, he's a good friend too. And and so that's when, uh, yeah, I would say then we all just basically went back the next day to uh, to San Diego and it was then flew home and ran into Whiff Road on the way home and started seeing in many ways the trumpet showing itself more and more to me as a way of connecting with what I had been through for lack of better words. And it's hard to describe that in a way, but it's as if the universe was reminding me the power and the, I don't know, the power of it, but also just the, I can't describe it much more than that. The opportunity of it is just the love of it, frankly. And it reminded me of the, really, it all goes back to love. And and the trumpet allowed me to share love, I would say, more the, some of the most powerful ways that I can in my life. And that's, if that is what the meaning of the world is, then you'd be crazy not to try to do that, or I guess, or to at least uh, in, incorporate it a little bit more and or to share what you've done and help other people on their journey with the instrument. And again, that's the abridged version of the experience. There's 99% more that I forgot, which is wild stuff. And there is more stuff I can share with you privately, but yeah. This is not a therapy session. I'm not qualified to give psychiatric or psychological advice at all. I would agree with that, James. Thank yeah. you, Nate. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm not qualified either. So yeah, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't play one. I, I'm not recommending anybody do any of this. You do your own research. Exactly. Um, I'm not all. a doctor. I don't play yeah. one on TV. I'm just, I have a podcast and that's it. So we all know our place when I say this, but it sounds to me like perhaps you may have reconciled a little bit of destruction in your experience brought by the trumpet. Is that fair? I think that's very, very fair. Yeah, I would say so. It's a, it, yeah, I would say that it's, it's cleared up the vision of what trumpet should be. And it's allowed me to, to see and feel and recognize the, the best qualities of it without the other stuff getting in the way as much. And yeah, allowed me to be just so grateful really too, that I had so many of the opportunities that I did that I was able to also give back. I fall back on trumpet a lot. I think when I'm judged by the Almighty, I'm going to be going back to trumpet more than almost anything else. Remember this concert, God? Remember when I did this? Remember I made this old lady cry? Remember that? Doesn't that make up for being a jerk? <laughs> so it's, but it, but ultimately it's, I feel it's, yeah, it's my way of being able to give love, I think, back at a, in a way that I always discounted. And I think I see now that it made a much bigger impact than I was allowing myself to see if that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. And I also, I just wrote down the word surrender, letting go of all that competition and competing with yourself probably more than anyone else. Those are the two words that I wrote down in response. So you've been think you've probably been thinking a little bit about comeback, Nate, Nate Mayfield's the comeback trumpet player. Have you had any thoughts of what that might look like? What would you, like? let's say you have a full year to get back into top, natemayfield.com shape. What's that going to look like? You're going to re resurrect the persona, the mask of natemayfield.com? Good question. I think I still need about another six months before I really go down that road. But I, I think 
This is a great question, James. I would like to be able to share, if possible, during some of these recitals, some of what I've shared with you in a way, just to, I, I would, I think I want to make sure that the audiences know how grateful I am that they're there, the people giving me their time that to listen to me, that it's, it means something to me because you can't, we're, we can't, we're not meant to live alone or whatever it is, love and joy. These things are meant to be shared, right? the worst thing that I could possibly do is just play in my living room. And we've all been there where we've had the best performances that we've ever had to ourselves. And it means nothing really to ourselves. Maybe we, we finally really nailed that etude or whatever it is, but in the end, it's all about sharing, sharing joy and sharing love. And that's a two way street that requires an audience. It requires other people and it requires them to be and. I would want them to know also, this goes back to previous audiences, how grateful I am that they came into it with the right intentions on their side. I've been a bad audience member a lot in my life, right? But most of the audiences, they've come there to, to experience love in many ways, to share love or to be part of that. And we can't discount that. I think that's really something that I want everybody to know how grateful I am, I think. And I think it's something that Frankly, a lot of the symphony orchestra sort of mentality, right? When I was growing up, they seemed like the most miserable people sometimes. I think there was a Wall Street Journal. I remember one of my trumpet teachers told me this. I think the Wall Street Journal had done a, a study on job satisfaction. And I think that symphony musicians were like 149 out of 150, I think just above prison guards. But don't quote me, you have to find the actual study. But it's but I think some of that comes from the fact that they've forgotten. I guess they've forgotten the audience, right? I think that they don't feel that the audience is, they're not viewing the audience in the same way the audience is. They just want to enjoy a nice concert. They don't really care if you use two and three to play a middle C versus an open, and it was slightly sharp in comparison to how the trombone, he just changed his mouthpiece last week and you did, and the sectional didn't catch it. And so the whole concert is crap. And anybody that likes it is crap. And I, and life is crap. And let's just go home and, and, and see how destructive that is. But it's not too far from the culture in that at least I've seen a lot over the years. And it's what it does is it, in some ways desecrates the the whole goal and and what's tragic to me is that so many of these musicians like myself become jaded they come into it out of a place of love and then for whatever reason the culture or experience just takes away a lot of that joy and it's i don't even know that it's anybody's fault i remember asking i think i asked ed carroll i think he hung up the trumpet for maybe the better part of 20 years i can't remember but i was like why wouldn't you want to just play in the orchestra all the time is playing Mahler five is great the first time it's great the second time third time it's okay and fourth time and by the you've done it a dozen times it's okay it's Mahler five okay whatever all i can you've already had your great performances all you can do now is probably screw it up a little bit more and it loses that then you lose your relationship to the audience. And I think if I were to, it would be different. I think that would be to me, the priority is to, it's ultimately just to share love and it's about to give the audience something where they, and whatever that, it doesn't have to be any particular type of piece that I play. It doesn't have to be a certain level that I play it at. And I would also like to share a lot of the skills that I learned, whether that's through breathing or the embouchure work that I've done and the struggles that I've had. I feel that I can help people in their own trumpet playing problems. And so I think that I would want to do some things like that as well. Trumpet is our first love, if you really think about it. I, I picked it up when I was eight, 
And I really, for me personally, I really fell in love with it when I was probably in the ninth grade. That's when it really clicked with me. And that, if I really think about it, my relationship with that instrument is my first love. And so when you, when people, they, they get into the industry and they get into the things that just, life just burns you out. When you have to make a living at something, it burns you out. And, and I can, and I totally understand why people feel disenchanted and like a need to step away from it because they feel there's just this cognitive dissonance when it comes to this thing that they love that has become a chore and in some cases just something that they loathe. You you said it better than I ever could. That is that is 100%. I never thought about that either, uh, James. I never thought, you could be a psychiatrist. That's pretty good, man. Yeah, let's not, it's, it's not downplay that. It's pretty good. I never thought about it being my first love, but in many ways, it's exactly what it was. You're, you you cling on to it too much at the beginning, and you just don't want it to go anywhere and jealously guard it, very competitive to protect it. it. It's That's a very good way to describe it. And then the relationship over time can become toxic if you're not careful, right? Love trans, love can easily turn into hate, right? They're the same, two sides of the same coin. And I've been there. I mean, I've... I've you know, I can't tell you all the screaming matches I've gotten into with my trumpet. It's, it's bananas. This is, And then I think that's right, though. I think all of that's very correct. I think coming back to it now, hopefully with a healthier relationship with it, I think recognizing that it is, yeah, it's a love and it's okay, right? And I think that's hard to describe. It's okay to actually love the instrument. And whereas I guess we don't really live in a society, really, I don't want to say we don't, but it's it was never really, we never talked about any of this kind of stuff. Hey, in sixth grade, it wasn't like we had somebody come and talk to us that yeah, some of you might be loving your trumpet right now. It's okay to learn about all the other stuff. But to, but to me, it was always, the, yeah, you're right. That's a great way to describe it. We have been going for a while. And Nate Mayfield is our guest here on the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. But before I let you go, Nate, I want to hear about Mont Blanc. Tell us about it. What, what, was, what was so great about it? The, the best part was hearing the, the kids cry for a lot of it. That was great to watch them scream about having to hike eight miles. It was great. And they always loved it at the end. So it was good. It was, it was actually great to see, yeah, my kids be able to do something I think they didn't think they, they could do. It was awesome, too. I, I don't know if I've talked about this a lot, but I've had nine foot surgeries. I'm still in some pain with my feet. I had my last one in late April. So to be able to even get through, I think it was about 80 to 100 miles. I can't remember exactly what we hiked around it. It was over 10 days, something like this. And, but my wife, who's obviously German, she planned and organized everything. They're really great at, really great at planning things. And so we went hut to hut. So you would hike for eight to 10, you'd hike really all day. It'd be like an eight hour hike. And then you would show up at a, at a hut and then you have a nice dinner. You might get a glass of wine and, and then just, you would want to fall asleep. But the, and there's also an ultra marathon that goes around Mont Blanc. In fact, an American just won it this year which is cool, but the views were just, it's really gorgeous. I highly recommend it. It's very approachable too. I don't think that it's its anything that is so outrageous. People could certainly do it or just go to a couple of the towns and do some hikes around it. And yeah, very fortunate. And uh, one of my, one of the only other loves I guess I have in that regard is hiking. So hopefully my feet will cooperate and I'll be able to do that for a long time. All right, folks, we've been listening to Trumpet Dynamics. We've got Nathaniel Mayfield on the call. NateMayfield.com is making its resurgence. The show notes are at TrumpetDynamics.com forward slash Mayfield. We really hit a lot in this interview. I appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate being here. And the one thing to keep remembering is that everything, the best things in life come out of a place of love. And it's it's great to see you, James, because I know that in you do, every time I've ever met you, 
you, it's always come out of everything we've ever done together. I've always seen that it's come out of a place of love. And that means you're doing right by the universe. It means you're doing right by God. It means you're doing why you were created in this world. And I applaud you for that. I have failed much in my life for doing things out of a place of love, but hopefully remember to do better in my life. But thank you for, thank you for talking to me and thinking about me. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard. <laughs>